Welcome to the Beyond Devices podcast. My name is Jan Dawson and with me is Aaron Miller. Uh, we've got our usual format, back to our usual format again after a couple of weeks off and then a slightly different format last week, uh, which means we will have a news roundup to kick things off in which we will talk about uh, Nintendo's stock price and what's happened to it over the last couple of weeks. Uh, we're going to talk about some uh, Apple rumors or reports from this week about um, various products. And then we will talk about Walmart's proposed acquisition of Jet.com, an online retailer. Uh, our question of the week will be somewhat different from usual. And the reason is that Aaron, uh, working with a couple of co-authors, has recently published a book um, on ethics in business. And uh, we're going to talk about that book. And so rather than a single big overarching question, I'm going to ask him several questions about that book, what it's about, uh, why it's been written, um, what ethics is anyway, and all that kind of stuff. So that will be our kind of middle segment today. And then in our third segment, we're going to talk about another thing that happened while uh, we were off for a couple of weeks, which was Verizon's uh, acquisition of Yahoo. Um, we're going to talk about it in the context of ad tech and what's happening with advertising. And we're going to broaden it out a little bit to talk about AT&T as well, because they're also doing some interesting stuff in the ad space, but with a very different emphasis at the moment. So I'm going to talk about both Verizon and AT&T to some extent, about that deal in particular, and about how these telecoms companies are getting into the ad biz as it were. And then we'll wrap up the episode, as always, with our weekly pick. Um, so that's the, the format and the uh, the agenda for today. And so we'll kick off with the news roundup. And, and first off is the Nintendo stock price. And we talked, I think, right before our break about uh, mobile gaming and the economics of that market. And we talked about Nintendo uh, and Pokemon Go specifically at that point. And, and at that time, what had happened was that Pokemon Go had launched and Nintendo's stock price had benefited enormously from this. Um, so lots of investors were piling in on Netflix, on Nintendo, excuse me, uh, on the basis that Pokemon Go was this huge success. And as we pointed out back then, um, actually, Nintendo owns a very small stake of Nintendo, of Pokemon Go, um, while other players like Niantic and uh, the Pokemon Company own much larger shares. And uh, what's happened is that uh, since then, uh, especially following their earnings call, Nintendo's stock prices dropped fairly precipitously. So, Aaron, what was your take on all of that? Well, I, you know, it's a fun chance to tease the idea that stock markets are efficient, <laughs> right? right? Because this was, I mean, this is when Nintendo reported the results and, and sort of told everybody, look, we're not going to make nearly as much money off Pokemon Go as everybody seems to think that announcement wasn't new information. I mean, it didn't take very much research before um, they announced their financials to figure out that po that Nintendo is a minority shareholder uh, in the Pokemon Go game. And it's just funny that, uh, you know, all of these, uh, as Touch Arcade put it, uh, one would think that the people spending billions of dollars worth in trades would have figured that out first. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. which seems really true. I don't know. I, that said, I I think the truth is there's still reason there's still reasons to be really optimistic about Nintendo because the hope is that Pokemon Go is showing Nintendo that there really is a future for them to bring their properties over to mobile gaming, which have been pretty much locked up in the Nintendo ecosystem. These are precious commodity resources that they have, precious properties like you know, Mario and, and Zelda and all those because they bring people over to the Nintendo devices and platforms. But, you know, I, I think it just shows that there's there's a lot of money for Nintendo out there if they were to bring their properties over to iOS and Android. 
Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's, yeah, it's, I mean, as we said at the time, it's, it's, it was, should have been obvious, but I, I suspect there's a lot of retail investors jumping in. And I suspect it's also been to some extent people jumping in, not off the back of uh, Pokemon Go itself, but the idea that Nintendo is perhaps finally taking smartphone gaming seriously and that this might right. lead to other things. And, you know, the correction was also, I think, off the back of some other stuff they said on the earnings call about the Wii U and various other things. But yeah, it was just interesting to see if you look at the one month stock chart for uh, Nintendo as of today, you see this massive spike and then basically it's ended the month back where it started. Um, and so, you know, whatever boost they got from it seems to have largely disappeared. Um, our second news roundup topic is these various Apple reports from various places. Um, I think Mark Gurman, who used to be at 9to5Mac and has been at Bloomberg for the last little while, now writing in Bloomberg house style, which is very different, I noticed this week. Um, you know, very formal language about sources who didn't wish to be quoted and so on and so forth, whereas it used to just be kind of reported as fact. Um, but the, the substance of the reports relates to the MacBook Pro specifically, while there have also been some other reports from other sources about the iPhone and the next version of the watch. So do you want to just talk us through some of that, Aaron? Yeah, I think the things that stood out to me most um, with the MacBook Pro, the report was really detailed. You know, you and I have talked before, speculated before as to whether or not uh, Mark Gurman's sources are planted leaks so that Apple can start building buzz around certain products. Uh, th there was a lot of detail in Gurman's report on the MacBook Pro, and there's a lot of attention being paid to the Mac line right now because it's kind of languished for about two years. Right. And so I wonder if Apple is deliberately trying to gin up some excitement about the Mac platform. Um, that said, it, it does sound like a really cool laptop with a, a essentially a touchscreen strip above the keyboard that right. would allow for custom functions. And then also something that had been speculated before but never actually reported as a, as a reliable rumor, the idea that Touch ID will be built into the MacBook Pro. And so... And, and Gurman reported that it would be baked into the power button. So the idea is when you power on your Mac, you're also authenticating. And, and then that also brings uh, um, Apple Pay to uh, the Mac line without requiring right. an, an iOS device to authenticate. Right. So I think that one's pretty cool. The Apple Watch rumors, I think, are the second most interesting part. Um, uh, uh, Mingu Cho, who's a stock analyst, uh, sent out a report to his customers that then got leaked to the press. And he said that he's what he's seeing indicates the likelihood that Apple is actually going to be doing two Apple Watches or Apple Watch lines in the fall. One will be essentially the old watch, but made to be slightly faster. And then the other will be a newer watch that will be. Uh, Slight but not very dramatic form factor changes, but would include new technologies like like GPS and a barometer, so that uh, you wouldn't necessarily like when you go running, you can get accurate tracking of your distance without having to bring your phone along. Uh, I'm really curious to see how that one plays out. There were no rumors about data being built in, um, and uh, so you know I wonder how much it really will detach people from their phones. But the Apple Watch rumors sounded pretty interesting. Um, yeah, and I think we can. Ex I, I I won't be surprised if that is part of the, you know, early September event that Apple tends to do. Right. And then and then obviously the you know the iPhone seven is the other big source of uh, information about rumors. But there isn't a lot that's really new, with the exception that there are reports now that the that the um, home button is going to be 
uh, essentially going to give haptic feedback like the force touch on the watch or the trackpads. And so the button one actually pressed down, it will just make it feel like it, it does when you push it. I, I love that feature. I, I, I love the way it feels on the, you know, on the iPhone screen and, and on the magic trackpad. I think it's going to be really cool um, in the home button as well. Yeah, interesting set of reports. I mean, the Mac Mac line. It was if we had these bizarre reports from the last week or so of Microsoft executives criticizing Apple for allowing the Mac lineup to age, as if this was some sort of arbitrary thing that you had to <laughs> kind of update the Mac lineup on a certain timeline, and if you didn't, it was a bad thing. I mean, we all know it's it's past due for an update, but you know, no company, let alone Apple, updates stuff just because it has been a while. You know, like you wait for the internal components that you need to make it a really meaningful upgrade. And we all know that they've been waiting for, say, Intel chips for quite some time now and presumably waiting on certain other technologies to be ready before they relaunch that lineup. I I certainly would be surprised if we didn't see it refresh this fall. I think Mark Gurman's report said it wouldn't be part of the September event. So it'll be interesting to see how that's announced. That's something we've speculated on before. Um, the watch stuff is interesting to me. I mean, with with before Watch OS three was announced, my feeling was that the the watch really needed a very significant spec bump to to really perform to perform better around apps in particular. And with Watch OS three, which I still haven't tried, um, I'm I'm too nervous to try the beta on. Uh, on my watch which is the only one I have um, but you know if that works as well as advertised then it does actually deal with a lot of my issues with it the the GPS thing is a really a non-issue for me I, I never really go anywhere without my phone anyway and so that that's really not going to make much difference to me I'm curious though to see what you know better innards would do for the watch and it's been a fairly decent amount of time since the first one was put together now so um, you know, we could see a fairly significant bump in some of the internal specs, which could make for pretty significant performance improvements as well. So I think that'll be really interesting. Um, yeah, this this idea about the MacBook Pro getting this big upgrade, you know, does raise the question of what happens to the rest of the MacBook lineup. Um, you know, we've talked before about the fact the MacBook Air is probably going to go away with a new MacBook Um but, you know, it still feels like there's a bit of a gap between that new MacBook and the MacBook Pro lineup as it has been. And so I'm curious to see if anything fills that gap or if the MacBook Pro lineup comes down, if the MacBook lineup somehow goes up to meet it somewhat or if there's it's just something of a gap in the middle. And so maybe the, the MacBook Air just sticks around for a bit longer uh, with some sort of minor upgrades until they're ready to eliminate it entirely. All right, well, let's move on to our third news roundup topic, which is... Uh, Walmart's proposed acquisition of Jet.com, which is an online retailer. Sales price was about $3 billion um, and uh, was reported sort of late last week and then confirmed over the weekend. Uh, I think Monday morning the announcement went out. Uh, it's an interesting one. Obviously, Walmart, biggest retailer in the world. Jet.com, fairly new on the scene as a sort of pure play e-commerce retailer. Um, I've tried them out a bit or tried to try them out. I've had really frustrating experience with them. Uh, relating to my zip code, uh, which is shared by several towns where I live and, and where they have one of these stupid autofill address things that once you put the zip code in, it locks you into a specific town and won't let you change it. So I wanted to order something from them a while back and simply wasn't able to uh, because it would have gone to the wrong town. So uh, just little glitches like that make you wonder quite how robust their technology is. But uh, in general, uh, Walmart's really struggled with e-commerce. They, their growth rate's been pretty anemic uh, compared to uh, Amazon's sort of 30, 30 plus percent year-on-year growth. 
Uh, and so they needed to do something. There seems to be a way to bring in uh, some good technology, some good people. And to my mind, probably also just sort of a, a different culture, a more innovative culture that can perhaps help to goose e-commerce at, at, at uh, Walmart in general. And so one of the big questions to my mind is how quickly it gets integrated and to what extent they protect that group and the product and just allow it to do its own thing so that they can continue to innovate without being kind of squashed within the much larger uh, walmart.com operation. I think one of the things about jet.com that has, I think, slowed it down. Well, I mean, they they sort of had uh, two competing problems. If they came in and just tried to be a low price online retailer the same way that Amazon has been, you know, they're not going to beat Amazon in that game. So they came in approaching it differently where they had this kind of this sort of structured and, to be honest, semi-confusing way to 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 save money on products. Yeah. Right. And there was this, like if you bought things in certain combinations, you would get more significant discounts. It was it, they they did that obviously to distinguish themselves. I think the problem was is it also made the the buying experience more complicated. Yeah. Which uh, that was what turned me off when I tried it anyway. Yeah. It's interesting to think of this idea though in the hands of Walmart, uh, where. Uh, you know, Walmart obviously brings a lot more purchasing power to get yes. cheaper goods, and it, I'll be curious to see if the if the low cost uh, if the low cost combo deals and the other sort of complicated approaches to save money actually survive. Uh, it, I'm, you know, I, I think the thing that's most surprising about the acquisition is just the it was the price tag compared to how young Jet is. So. Yes. Yeah, I don't know. I'm not optimistic about the the fate of that particular acquisition. Yeah, I mean, in the grand scheme of things, for Walmart, it's it's kind of peanuts, but uh, it's it is interesting. I mean, I I feel like all these online retailers tried to set themselves apart, as you were saying, and and Jet, you know, did that too. The problem is Amazon's just cracked it. You know, this massive scale, um, huge investment in distribution, getting distribution very very close to customers so that you can do shipping very quickly and efficiently and at low cost and, and in their case in a subsidized way they've just kind of figured out how to do this really well and anybody else basically has to do the same thing and interesting thing of course is that walmart has the distribution down pat they just don't seem to have been able to fix the kind of online user interface and that side of it and that's apparently where the jet.com stuff comes in It'd be interesting to see you know can they fix some of the problems that it's had, um, you know, perhaps eliminate some of the confusing business model aspects and just turn it into more of a pure play sort of e-commerce thing, uh, building off the back of Walmart scale. Um, you know, that seems to be the best way for it to go, but we're very curious to see how that all pans out. Yeah. And Jet couldn't have had all that great of growth prospects if they were selling so quickly. Yeah. I mean, as a relatively young company, it, Walmart offered them a decent chunk of change, but I mean, if they really had ambitions to be Amazon-sized, uh, they must have not seen the prospects of that being all that realistic. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and a good exit for them. I think it was a significant multiple over the last right. fundraising round, so it's probably good in that sense. Yeah. All right, well, let's move on to our uh, question of the week, which, as I said up front, is slightly different from how we usually do this. It's not a big sort of question about the tech industry or anything like that. In this particular case, um, Aaron and several co-authors have just finished and published a book on ethics in business. And so um, we are going to talk through that. So as a reminder, Aaron's a business school professor, um, and so this is his day job, um, in addition to being um, you know, an 
a fan of Apple and other consumer technology. This is what Aaron does for a living. And so as part of that, he's been working on this for quite some time. This is a subject that he teaches about as well. And so that's what we're going to be talking about for this middle segment here is this this book. And as we talk about the book, talk about some of the interesting frameworks and things for thinking about ethics that, that the authors here have come up with. So I'll be asking some questions about that and Aaron will be answering those as we go through. Uh, and uh, as usual on our website, when we're all done here, um, we will publish uh, links and so on so that you can go read more about it and buy it and so on if you're interested in doing that. Um, so let's kick off by just talking about uh, what the essence of the book is and what, what is this book really about? And perhaps you can tell us a little bit about your co-authors and how it all came about to you. Sure. So um, about five years ago, one of my co-authors and I, a guy named Brad Agel, he's um, a, a really successful, talented academic in the business ethics world, in fact, wrote one of the most highly cited articles in the history of the field of business ethics. I, I, uh, I feel really lucky I get to work on a project with him like this. Uh, anyway, Brad had this great idea of creating a typology of ethical dilemmas, uh, essentially trying to figure out, are there certain, can we, can we d define more narrow categories of, of when you have an ethical challenge in front of you or not? Um, he and I spent some time uh, well, quite a bit of time, five years actually, doing research on this question. Um, we gathered hundred. The way we did our research is we gathered hundreds of ethical dilemmas from uh, MBAs and executive MBAs. So these are all people that have had actual work experience. A lot of academic research is done with undergraduate students, and that works for a lot of different kinds of research. We needed people who had actually had work experience for our research to work to be meaningful. So we collected hundreds of dilemmas from people uh, based on what their experiences were in work. And it was a really simple question. We just asked them to relate to us uh, an ethical dilemma that they faced at work. Um, we collected these dilemmas and went through them and over time identified what we consider to be the 13 most common dilemmas that people face in their careers. Um, they, uh, they range uh, across a lot of different kinds of dilemmas. So the most common one we saw was standing up to power. So that's typically it comes in the form of your boss asking you to do something unethical. But we also found that, you know, a lot of people make promises and then they find that they're that later on they're hard to keep and they think that's an ethical challenge. Often you will see something going wrong and you're not sure if you should intervene. Um, conflicts of interest, obviously, are a really common one. Also, uh, suspicions that something is going wrong and you're not sure how to proceed. Um, another challenge is, uh, you know, everybody else is sort of playing dirty, right? Other people are cheating. Does that mean you should cheat too? Um, another common problem we saw is that a lot of people want to follow the rules of their organization, but if they break this rule this time, it actually leads to a better outcome. So what do you do when breaking a rule do you think gets you to the better outcome? Um, and related to that one is what we call dissemblance, which basically just means misrepresenting the truth, trying to get a better outcome. Uh, loyalty was a common dilemma we saw, people feeling that they have an obligation of loyalty to somebody else. They never actually made a promise, but they, you know, owe this person because they were kind to them sometime in the past. Um, another one we saw was sacrificing personal values. Often people bring very personal values with them to work, religious values, values, beliefs about, uh, you know, keeping the environment clean, any number of very personally held beliefs, and, and what do you do when you encounter a problem at work that comes in conflict with those beliefs. Um, unfair advantage was another one we saw where people have the opportunity to sort of take advantage of somebody else in a situation. 
Um, and then we, the last two, sort of rounding out the 13, is uh, repair, where you've made a mistake, but uh, it's going to be really expensive to you financially or reputationally if you let people know that you did it and try to fix it. And then finally, last one was showing mercy, where somebody has screwed up and now they're asking you to sort of let them off the hook for their mistake. Um, these, these 13 challenges uh, to us felt like dangers. And so what we ended up doing is writing a book that's like a wilderness field guide, but for business ethics. So the idea is if you had a wilderness field guide, you'd go out there and they would tell you, you know, this is what happens when you come across a, a mother bear. This is what to do. This is what you do when you're out in the middle of the night and need to build a structure, you know, to keep yourself dry and warm. And so the book approaches that, uh, all of these ethical dilemmas we turned up in our research, but uh, so we try to keep it very practical. Each chapter in the book opens with a, an actual case, an actual situation that happened to somebody that came from our research and then uh, closes with a practice case and then in the middle has a bunch of great advice. Our, our third co-author is a guy named Bill O'Rourke. And the reason we brought on Bill is he's a good friend. He's a common guest. He's a very frequent guest lecturer in our courses here. Um, he was an ex executive at Alcoa for over 20 years. He, Alcoa is the huge aluminum manufacturer um, in the Fortune 100. And they, uh, uh, when Bill worked for Alcoa, he worked in a lot of different positions that put him in ethically challenging situations. Not because Alcoa is an unethical company. To the contrary, they're actually pretty great. But just circumstances he found that, sh that, that definitely made uh, doing the right thing uh, very challenging. He was over procurement, for example, he was in charge of environment, health, and safety for Alcoa. We actually opened with a story of his that comes from that part of his experience. He also was uh, the, the executive who opened Alcoa's business unit in Russia. And uh, as you can imagine, there are a lot of ethical challenges that are unique to doing business in Russia. His entire time in Russia, uh, Bill O'Rourke never paid a bribe, not even to get through customs. In fact, he tells a story about how he sat in customs for six hours one time coming back into the country because he refused to pay a bribe that was equivalent to, I don't know, $20 or something like that. Um, so, uh, so the book also is full of his stories and experiences, which really just bring it to life and... Uh, and I think illustrate really well exactly the things that we're talking about. We also cover some more general uh, things that come out of the research and business ethics to kind of round out the education. So that way the reader who has it, and our goal with the book is to essentially have all these dangers, this sort of typology of ethical dilemmas, to always have it quick at hand, right? So the goal is that if you encounter a problem, you can just have this book as a quick reference to give you handy strategies for how to manage the situation that you're facing. Great. So, I mean, there's, there's a risk, I guess, you guys are academics, you know, there's a risk that this is kind of an academic exercise that, you know, it's, it's a typology, it's very interesting, it's kind of like, you know, biologists and others might create their own sort of typologists to the things that they study and so on. Does having a typology actually help in any way? I mean, is this actually of practical use to people? Yeah, we definitely think it is, and that's not just our opinion. We've we've seen it put to use. See, here's the thing. A lot of people don't understand that ethics is not simply a matter of having good intentions. This is where a lot of people, I think, misunderstand the nature of being an ethical person. It, the vast, vast majority of people have good intentions. That's not the issue. The issue is also having the skill set you need to bring about the correct outcome. This is uh, Being ethical in the workplace requires a set of skills, not just a good heart. Um, I think the best illustration of this is actually the very sad story of Joe Paterno. 
So if you look at, you know, Joe Paterno's career track record at Penn State as a head coach there, he was actually really well known over decades for being an incredibly ethical person. And the reason was because he made very hard but ethical choices. In fact, he tells a story in in an autobiography that he wrote about kicking two players off the team in only his second year as head coach because they had broken some team rules regarding drinking and how this was a defining moment for him. And you saw it played out over and over again over his career that he was always intent on doing the right thing. Well, then when the Jerry Sandusky accusations got to his desk and he had to decide what to do about this, and this was, if you're not familiar, uh, this was about uh, accusations involving uh, child abuse. Uh, Joe Paterno just kind of sent the sent the accusations up the chain, expecting that somebody else would deal with the problem. Well, nobody did. The administrators covered up what was happening. Joe Paterno was in a position to make a difference and didn't. And, uh, you know, the question is, how could somebody who had practiced and exhibited incredible ethical skills over a 20-year period screw up so badly in this situation, where he clearly could have done more and didn't? In fact, he's the quote the sort of famous quote attached to him was, in hindsight, I wish I had done more. Well, the reason was because he was lacking the skills unique to that particular dilemma. He Mm -hmm. confronted a lot of other kinds of dilemmas, but he didn't confront this one and wasn't sure what to do. In fact, he gave an interview to the Washington Post and he said, we never had until that point, 58 years, I think, I had never had to deal with something like that. And I didn't feel adequate, is what he said. He went on to say, I didn't know exactly how to handle it. I was afraid to do something that might jeopardize what the university procedure was. And he was a very rule-bound kind of guy, so he thought about the rules and what the rules would tell him to do. And he didn't think in a more sophisticated way about the unique situation he was facing. And so Joe Paterno's failure regarding Jerry Sandusky and those accusations that turned out to be true and devastating to so many people... Um, you know, Joe Paterno's failing wasn't a failure of intentions. It wasn't that he didn't have a good heart. He demonstrated a good heart over decades. It was that he had a failure of skills. And so having a typology gives us the chance to give people the unique skills for the unique circumstances they face. The nice thing about our research is we're pretty sure it covers 95% of the dilemmas that people will face in their careers. And, and the dilemmas do have unique attributes, and it's important to understand what makes each dilemma unique. And so that's, uh, so that's the benefit of it. And, and, you know, you can see examples of this, not just with Joe Paterno, where, where a failure in ethics is a, is a, is, is, is a failure for a lot of people. Um, Volkswagen is a great example of this. So if you look at the way Volkswagen handled their mission scandal. Now, in, in leadership research, there are generally two kinds of leadership people talk about. There's the kind that's about inspiring people, and there's the kind about managing resources efficiently. Volkswagen is, was stellar, or is, continues to be stellar in those two. They're a very inspiring company, great brand image. They obviously are very efficiently run, uh, very profitably run as a, as a car company. In fact, in a way that has made them stand out historically. But our basic argument is that there has to be a third set of, of, of skills that you, that, you can, that you consider when you're thinking about leadership, and that's when it comes to ethics. Volkswagen blew it on the ethics side, and now they're paying a huge price because of it. Right. So this is a consumer technology podcast. It's not an ethics podcast as such. So how does all this relate to what we usually talk about? I mean, are there unique ethical issues that relate to consumer technology? Are there kind of recent stories from the news that that have sort of an ethical angle to them that you could apply some of what you've been talking about to? 
Sure. Yeah, I, I wouldn't say that they're necessarily unique to technology and to, to consumer tech companies. Uh, certainly, they have unique manifestations. Our research came from a very broad scope, uh, uh, set of industries. And so we had people coming from consumer tech, from education, from healthcare, from all over. And so our research comes out of really kind of any organizational setting. But I definitely think that there have been fascinating examples of, of individual types of these dilemmas popping up in the news. Uh, one, for example, is how you know we often make promises, and then later on it becomes really hard to keep those promises. Google has done this repeatedly in the products that it offers to its customers. Uh, you know, a couple years later, it decides that these products aren't worth keeping around, and so they sometimes very unceremoniously yank the product or, or cut it off, and and leave all these customers sort of high and dry, saying, "Oh my gosh, what am I going to do now?" Because I got really accustomed to this. You know, Google really, if you think about it, Google has got all these people counting on them. And then when they pull a product, they're kind of breaking this unspoken promise about uh, about the product remaining. Um, it, so so it, companies all the time are making promises to consumers, and they ought to think more about the ethical implications of the promises that they're making. I think too often they just sort of figure, yeah, people go elsewhere. In the case of Google, I'm sure part of their reasoning was, hey, these products are free. We're not really beholden to these people, but these people have learned to rely on Google and that specific product over time, and they can't just ignore that reliance. Um, and you know, unfortunately, the truth is sometimes they've just sort of, you know, given it some some PR speak to say why they have to cancel the product, and they're really sorry about their customers, but uh, you know, they don't do very much to help the people that have been counting on them. Um, I think a, a one that's really interesting in, in the form of repair, this is not a widely known story, but we do include in our book. Um, there's a company called, that's called knowyourcompany.com, and it's a service for s small to mid-sized companies that they can get to better understand what's happening internally within their organization. It's a really cool product, and it's really well-placed, actually, because they like to target growing companies that can't afford these, ma these massive information systems infrastructures. And it's a chance for CEOs of growing companies to make sure they know what's happening at the ground level with their employees, because if you're a, C if you're a startup CEO, you generally know all the people you're working with until your company starts growing and then there are people you don't actually really know that well. So know your company is positioning itself as an information resource in that regard. Um, Claire Liu, the CEO, relates a great story about how uh, after they pushed a software update uh, to their service, they inadvertently left open a whole bunch of information that should have only been accessible to CEOs, but it turned out to also be accessible to brand new employees during the onboarding process. There were about 85 of their customers that were affected by this, and huh. they didn't hear any reports that anybody had discovered this flaw, so they didn't know, and they had no way of knowing if any information had been accessed improperly. Right. And so Claire Liu had to decide, okay, do we just plug the hole here and hope nobody noticed that it happened, or do I go talk to all these CEOs of these companies that, that have paid us for our service, and do we admit the mistake? And, uh, you know, that's the repair dilemma. And Claire Liu tells this great story about how she decided to, do, to tell all the CEOs and why and ended up having a fantastic outcome as a result that, that engendered a lot of customer loyalty. Mm, that's great. Yeah, and then a third one is, you know, I think Uber is a great example of a company that uh, has sort of risen to the news because of their ethics. And in particular, it's because of 
playing dirty, which is one of the ethical dilemma types. Yeah, and the was, others. That was the company that sprung to mind when you mentioned that particular. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Dilemma. Playing dirty. I mean, they, you know, they did things against Lyft, right, uh, a couple yep. of years ago, uh, sort of combating them as a competitor in the space that a lot of us would not consider ethical. And then, and then another thing that Uber does is skirting the rules all the time when it comes to legal restrictions on ride-sharing services. Because they very consistently will just go into markets where what they're doing is illegal, but they do it anyway because they, you know, they, they, their argument is, is this is the only way these laws are ever going to change. And so, but it's gotten them in a lot of hot water and has cast them as a company that uh, is not always, well, let's just say that they're not always really particular about the ethics of the choices that they make. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So, so anyway, those this, are just three quick yeah. examples. Yeah, no, that's great. So all of this raises some interesting questions. I mean, you mentioned one of the dilemmas was about the personal values that you bring to work with you, whether religious or otherwise, you know, the things that you personally care about that may not be universal. But that, that raises the question of kind of what what is ethics, kind of why be ethical? Is there some standard set of sort of ethical values, if you like, that, that people subscribe to? And kind of why, why be ethical in the first place? What what are the advantages of this if we're being mercenary about it? Sure. You know, it turns out that there is a lot of research that shows that every single person on Earth has natural instincts about ethics that you can actually categorize and describe pretty well. Um, one of those is is being respectful to important or sacred things. One of those is avoiding doing harm to other people. Another one of those is communicating truthfully as a default behavior. Uh, these are all sort of standards of ethics that we can truly consider them to be universal. But that doesn't actually answer your question, right? Because most people aren't asking the question, why should I be ethical ever? Instead, right. most people, when they confront the question, it's why should I be ethical in this hard moment, right? That's, that's where most people are asking that question because they come yeah. across a dilemma. They think they're going to be a lot better off by doing the unethical thing. Maybe because a competitor is being unethical, they feel like they have to compete. And so I think the, the, the question really is, like, why, why be ethical all the time? It's not just why should I ever be ethical, but it's why should I be ethical in this particular moment. And, you know, I think there are really good arguments to it that, that illustrate why it's important. You can't ignore the importance of personal harmony. I mean, I, I think a lot of people sort of undervalue the idea that, you know, you might make choices that keep you up at night. It was really interesting going back to uh, the dilemmas in our research. We actually went back and asked a bunch of these people who had given us their dilemmas. We asked them what happened, like what choice they made. And a surprising, a surprising number came back and said, you know what, I made the wrong choice and I regret it to this day. Huh. We had one, for example, who was working for a, uh, an outdoor products manufacturer, and uh, like outdoor equipment. And they had a competitor who was doing a new supply chain strategy in China, and they were trying to sort of get the inside track on it. This guy was there as an intern, and his boss said, hey, I want you to call... Um, I, I want you to call our competitor and tell them that, that you're doing a, a, a research paper for a class and find out what they're doing with their supply chain. It turned out that the person he was going to be calling at the, comp at the competitor company was an alumnus of the same school. Oh, man. I know, right? And so the, his boss was basically saying, hey, go lie to this company so we can get some competitive intel. Yeah. And, uh, you know, this guy did it. Right. And he so he went through it. He actually told the lie. He collected the information. He handed it to his boss. Well, it turns out that they didn't actually use the information or in the end even need it. 
And so he totally blew it on his ethics. To this day, regrets it, especially yeah. because it didn't even help him professionally, right? <laughs> if anything, it just sort of showed that, uh, you know, he's willing to do sketchy things. Right, right. And, and, and that's kind of another point of this is you can't ignore the reputational value of being an ethical person. There's a story right. I like to tell about how I was selling a used car. And when I went to go get my car keys so the, so the guy could test drive it, I am 99% sure that he sabotaged the fuel line of the car because when he got oh. in and drove off there's gasoline pouring out of the bottom of the car and when he got out of the car he immediately started trying to talk me down on price you know we don't appreciate how far our reputation and ethics can go fast forward three years and my wife and i are in the market for a car and we go to a dealership and guess who the salesman was Uh, (laughs) it was this guy and we were out of there no way i'm buying a car from this guy you know and whatever money (laughs) he was trying to save on my uh, on my car that i was selling to him was a lot less than the commission he would have gotten from selling us a car that day. Right. Oh, man. I know. Isn't that crazy? And this this stuff is real. This happens. And this is why being ethical matters. And, and, you know, I think there's another problem with the question, why should I be ethical if everybody else is being unethical? I think there's a misunderstanding that being ethical means you have to be always trusting. And that's not necessarily true. I actually go out of my way to teach my students that, you know, you can engage in self-defense, right? You can protect yourselves from the unethical behavior of other people. Um, and that doesn't, you don't have to do that in a way that's unethical. There's nothing wrong with protecting yourself and nothing unethical about it for sure. I, I think when it comes down to it, though, there's, there's never going to be an ironclad answer to this question saying, yes, you should always be ethical. Because if there was, nobody would ask the question. Everybody would already know the answer. Right. It's there, there are times you're going to lose for doing the right thing, but you do it because this is the price you're willing to pay to keep your integrity. And the truth is, you know, everybody loses sometimes, including the unethical people. Right. You, you're not always going to have business victories, like yeah. at every single turn. And if sometimes you take your lumps because you want to do the right thing, uh, I think there are a lot of really good arguments why, why that's still okay. Yeah. Cool. Well, I bet we could keep going like this for a while, but I think we'll wrap up the segment here. But one thing we haven't said is, what's the book called? Um, oh, right. And how can people buy it? <laughs> yeah, so the book is called The Business Ethics Field Guide. Uh, it's, uh, it's available on our website, ethicsfieldguide.com. It should be popping up on Amazon. The listing is there, but it says it's unavailable because we just got the books from the printer. And so our first shipment of books are on the way to Amazon right now. So probably early next week, it'll be available on Amazon. Um, and, uh, we also have a great forward by Paul O'Neill. He was the 72nd, uh, U.S. Treasury Secretary, um, we're really, and, and was the CEO of Alcoa for a long time. In fact, was a landmark CEO there. He dramatically improved their, their, uh, their safety practices while he was CEO. Um, he also, uh, stepped down as U.S. Treasury Secretary after just a year and a half because of his ethical conflicts with the Bush administration. So he's the kind of guy that having an endorsement from him means a lot to us. So you have so, to yeah. tell us about the blurb from the lady who worked at Enron. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. So a lot of people don't know her by name, but but her name is Sharon Watkins. And uh, Sharon was the primary whistleblower at Enron. Uh, we've been lucky to have her come and be a guest speaker at our courses here at BYU. But um, this is how her blurb starts. She says, the business ethics field guide was sorely needed at Enron, my former employer. <laughs> when faced with an ethical dilemma in the workplace, the most common response is what I call the, quote, deer in the headlights phenomenon. We freeze in place with no instinctive action to take. Unfortunately, taking no action translates as acceptance. And we're swept along to a place we don't want to go. 
The practical lessons in this guidebook will equip you for the ethical challenges you're likely to face as you advance in your career. I love this book. So yeah, we obviously are really excited about that blurb too. <laughs> yeah, great stuff. Well, congratulations on getting the book out. And again, we'll include a link. Aaron just gave you the URL, but in case you didn't catch it, we'll include the link on the website at podcast.beyonddevices as well. Thanks. Let's move on to our third segment. I think we'll keep this fairly short. Um, this is about Verizon's acquisition of Yahoo and to some extent the broader sort of uh, topic of telecoms companies getting into advertising. So uh, this is a deal that's some time in the making. Uh, Yahoo kind of engaged in this auction process. It's the core internet business at Yahoo that's important to note. So it doesn't include the Alibaba stake or some other bits and pieces. Um, but uh, Verizon always looked like the most likely candidate to walk away with these Yahoo assets out of this auction process, and sure enough, they did. Um, Aaron, you mentioned uh, when we were talking before we started recording this 2014 article on Forbes that you found, which, which seems like a good kicking off point for this. Well, it is a great article. It was written by um, Eric Jackson, uh, and the, the headline reads, Why Yahoo Will Buy AOL. And so if you pause, you're like, wait, isn't that backwards? It is. It was implying that Marissa Meyer, as CEO of, of Yahoo, should have bought AOL back then. Uh, you know, it makes all the same arguments that are now manifesting themselves today. There's just a, a fascinating and important synergy between AOL, which is owned by Verizon, and, uh, and Yahoo and their properties. Yeah, no, it's, it's an interesting one. I mean, I, around that same time, I was kind of making similar arguments when people would ask me about either of those companies. You know, I, I looked at their financial results and, you know, all the commentary about them every quarter. And there was just a lot in common. You know, these are companies that have massive online audiences, you know, to, albeit sort of with somewhat sort of legacy taint to them. So brands are perhaps more familiar in the past than in the present for many people that are kind of up on the newest stuff that's going on. Um, but paired with that, we're making massive investments in ad technology, um, you know, and doing a lot of the same things, frankly, you know, both of them had had investments in, in a lot of the same kinds of companies. And it just seemed like if you were to combine these two companies, you'd have more scale. Uh, you don't have to buy one of everything rather than two and uh, eliminate a major potential competitor in the process. And so it's always made a lot of sense to me, you know, right from when reporters started asking about who should buy, uh, Yahoo, uh, it, it you know, Verizon AOL was the obvious name that popped up just because they were such similar businesses uh, and they seemed like they'd go together so well. They have a lot of the same challenges uh, by the same token. So as I said, this this legacy taint, you know, AOL's familiar from the dial-up era uh, to, to many of us, but uh, it feels very much like yesterday's kind of technology. Yeah, Yahoo similarly, you know, it was, the, it was the directory of the web essentially in the early days of the internet, but, you know, none of us have used it for that for a very long time, I think. So, um, you've got this issue where there's a lot of these brands that seem to live in the past rather than in the present. Uh, but fascinating to, to watch them come together now. You know, both still viable companies, just uh, Yahoo really been struggling over the last several years despite Marissa Myers uh, being the CEO there, making a lot of big acquisitions and big hires and so on, none of which really seem to have paid off in a big way. No. And, you know, I think another thing that has actually kind of surprised me about the coverage of this acquisition is how little people seem to be appreciating the scale of these two companies when you glue them together. According to Advertising Age, they did a great interview with Tim Armstrong after, this, after the acquisition was announced. Um, AOL and Yahoo sites combined have a, a unique monthly audience of 236 visitors. Um, and million. to put that into context, Facebook, by the same measure, had 209 million. And Google had 242. I mean, so these companies together, 
and and that was an unduplicated measure between AOL and Yahoo being combined. So that's you know that's a that's a huge 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 internet audience. And I don't think, at least in the coverage, you know people aren't talking about this as as a newly formed juggernaut. But but that's the reality of it. Yeah, and that's the and this is these is U.S. audiences, I guess, because each of those companies has a much bigger that's audience right. globally. And and yeah. Yahoo talks about a billion users, I think, globally. And and obviously, you know, Facebook's well beyond that. Google's at about that scale too. Um, but that's the fascinating thing about Yahoo. Here you have one of a handful, literally, of companies that has a global internet audience of a billion users, and yet you look at the other companies in that category: Google, Facebook, um, Microsoft, maybe depending on how you measure things. Uh, they're massively bigger companies. You know, Yahoo had never really successfully monetized that audience, at least recently, uh, and that's been one of the most frustrating things in, in following them and watching them is they just never seem to have made the most of that audience um, and just uh, have have under underutilized it, essentially. Uh, the other interesting thing about Yahoo is it's really not one property. I mean, there's Google, there's Google.com is a huge chunk of, Google's overall business, um, search advertising and so on. With Yahoo, you know, Yahoo.com is a part of their business, certainly, but it's a business that's also spread across a lot of different individual entities, whether it's Flickr or Tumblr or Yahoo Finance or their fantasy sports properties or any number of other uh, properties that Yahoo owns. It's not one big audience. It's actually lots of different audiences. And uh, Yahoo Finance is actually one of the best performing businesses in there, apparently. And that's one of the ones where uh, Verizon and AOL are going to be investing quite heavily going forward, whereas there may be other parts that they shut down um, over time. So it'd be very interesting to watch kind of how that evolves and where they really invest and if there are any bits that they just shut down entirely or spin off or sell to somebody else along the way. Yeah, and I, I got to say, getting to the ad tech part of our conversation, I, I really think these properties are, are in better hands with Tim Armstrong than they were with Marissa Meyer. Uh, Marissa Meyer didn't really have the advertising, you know, background baked into her, her personality the same way that Tim Armstrong does. I, yeah, I think, you know, everybody's very familiar with, with Marissa Meyer coming out of Google, and it's easy to forget that Tim Armstrong also came out of Google because he made his move to AOL. Um, you know, earlier and right. uh, back in 2009. But uh, before coming to AOL, uh, uh, Tim Armstrong was vice president of advertising and commerce um, with Google starting all the way back in 2004. So this is a guy who has grown up with, with, in, with, web, with internet advertising as, it, as the yeah. industry has grown up. And he just definitely seems to be the kind of person who gets it. I mean, way back in 2014, and I don't have more recent information on this, but back in 2014, uh, AOL was actually serving more video ads than YouTube was, right? And oh, that and uh-huh. that's under and that's under Tim Armstrong's leadership. And and he's doing some other really kind of cool creative things. He's a guy who gets internet brands for sure. And if you look at how yeah. well he's built up Huffington Post. Uh, you know, he's also taken TechCrunch and Engadget to, to to pretty great audiences. I mean, he's a guy who gets the brands involved, and I think that's I think from an advertising perspective, it's exciting, especially for you know Tumblr and Flickr, which I think are two products that people can be legitimately nervous about anytime there's an acquisition. If you use Flickr right. a lot, if you use Tumblr a lot, there are reasons to be nervous. But I you know I think uh, I think Tim Armstrong is actually going to manage those particular properties really well. 
Yeah, no, it'll be interesting certainly to, to watch that. I mean, Tim Armstrong was an ad sales guy even back in the day, so he really gets that side of things, which you know, Marissa Meyer's focus is always elsewhere when she was at Google. Um, it's interesting, I mentioned this up front too, but AT&T is also making a big investment in advertising in a very different sphere. So it's really their acquisition of DirecTV that's fostering that and, and there's a lot of interesting stuff around what they call addressable advertising, which is where ads can be targeted at a very specific kind of user level through the TV, through the set-top box something that DirecTV had invested a lot in. AT&T had invested a lot in internet advertising uh, through their AdWorks brand. And in the last couple of years, they basically shut down that whole side of it and then decided to focus on the TV side. And now across their U-verse uh, AT&T TV stuff and the DirecTV satellite delivered stuff, uh, doing more of this addressable advertising and all kinds of other stuff around that. And I had a really interesting briefing with them a couple of months ago about that. But uh, they're really kind of the leaders in that area. So it's interesting to see these two big, the two biggest telecoms companies in the US investing in advertising, but with a very different focus, with Verizon very focused on internet advertising, AT&T much more focused on the TV side, which Verizon's actually been de-emphasizing somewhat recently. So really interesting stuff happening there. Anything else that you wanted to add about all of this? I just think it's an interesting prospect uh, thinking about these mobile operators uh, generating significant revenue from advertising. I, you know, I think it, they've been constantly fighting against the idea of becoming a dumb pipe. Uh, you know, I think that's their, ba- their greatest fear is that data service will is be commoditized. Um, advertising is a great avenue for them to still make a lot of money off of being a dumb pipe, so to speak in a way that, ironically, I think could actually be consumer-friendly. I mean, there are clearly still privacy issues, and we've covered advertising and privacy on the Internet, you know, in quite a few episodes in the past. But but I do like the idea that, that mobile operators could at least supplement their revenue through advertising because uh, it feels like it can create more, uh, well, I, if nothing else, at least create less expensive mobile data connections and you know, before long, that's the way pretty much everybody's going to be connecting to the internet. Yeah, no, interesting stuff. All right, well, let's wrap up with our weekly pick. It's my turn this time around, and I could just recommend Aaron's book, which I do. Um, so go check that out for sure. But uh, I will uh, not do that, given that we spent a lot of time talking about that. And I'll, I'll instead recommend a movie. Uh, it's been out for a while. I actually watched it on the plane on our ride over to England recently. Um, there's a movie Concussion with Will Smith and it's the story of the doctor who first uh, identified a link between concussions in uh, American football and uh, sorry between players playing American football and concussions and then later on uh, developing this particular kind of brain condition that's somewhat unique to uh, these football players that leads to all kinds of uh, mental and other issues uh, down the line and so it's it's not a happy movie necessarily because he is both discovering some really tragic stuff about these players and then on top of that is being uh, routinely sort of stymied and attacked in different ways by the uh, football establishment and so on but it's uh, uh, good acting interesting story uh, you know an important story at the moment too however you feel about this particular issue uh, raises some really interesting questions about uh, that sport in particular and to some extent about other sports with similar characteristics and so uh, I'd recommend that movie Concussion it's available in all the usual places where you would rent uh, or buy movies to watch these days so I'll include a link or two on the website to that 
Um, just by way of housekeeping, apologies, first of all, I developed a cold, it appears, right before we started recording today. And so um, I've been trying to manage it as we've gone through. Hopefully it hasn't been too audible, um, but apologies if it has been. Uh, secondly, we have a slightly different logo for the podcast. It looks very similar to the old one in terms of color scheme, but has changed slightly. So if you're looking for the podcast in your favorite app and can't find it, that might be why the name and everything, all the links is all still the same. But uh, changed the the logo recently in keeping with changes to Beyond Devices uh, blog on various other platforms, including Apple News and Medium. Thirdly, uh, we really benefit from your reviews and your promotion of the podcast. We have uh, around about 500 regular listeners for each episode, but some do better than that. We'd love to increase that number uh, because we'd love more people to hear our conversations here. So if you find the podcast valuable, we'd appreciate anything you can do to help to promote it. Uh, one of the things you can do is leave us a review on iTunes. We have 10 reviews with an average of five stars right now, which is great, um, but we'd love more. Uh, but also if you'd like to promote it on your social media channel of choice. So if you are a Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn user, if you'd like to post about the podcast and link to us on iTunes or SoundCloud or the website, uh, we'd really appreciate that. That really helps to get the word out. And if you enjoy it, chances are other people you know might well enjoy it too. So we'd appreciate you giving it a little boost in that way and helping us uh, find more listeners. So thank you for being with us. Thank you for uh, joining us this week. We hope you'll do it again next week and uh, have a great week.